prayer request list. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning thankful again to be able to come together like this and to comfort one another, to pray for one another, to encourage each other. We thank you for the sisters that we have with us every week who live with pain and that have uh, been such an inspiration to us. Be with our sisters, Mary Morgan and Nanelle Mont. Give them relief from their pain. See them through another day in your service. Be with Lynn and Dennis. Uh, whatever has been found between her liver and her gallbladder, we pray that you will uh, give them a good diagnosis and, and deliver Lynn from, from that, uh, that affliction, if, if that's necessary. Give her relief from the pain that she lives with. Be with Paul and Sarah. Give, them, give Paul strength to be an example to his wife and children and inspire our brother Paul to be with his wife and help them to be drawn closer to you in everything that they say and do as a family. Be with our brother Required and Carolina as they are rejoicing in the birth of a new little girl, Elizabeth, and give them the strength they need to be dealing with this new uh, blessing that you placed upon them. Be with our sister Donna, Donna Carlisle. Give her deliverance and healing from the many health issues that she faces every day. Give her relief from the pain that she lives with. Be with our brother Steve Crook and his wife and hasten the closing of their house. Give them the wisdom, the strength, and the stamina that they need to make the move that's before them and to help him to uh, be able to concentrate on his updated IT accreditation that he's going through while he's making this move. Be now with our brother Daniel Dickerson as he continues to deal with his mother who is experiencing memory loss and uh, dementia and the terrible situation that she's in with not being able to be at home with her family. Give her peace with whatever they assisted living institution they place her in. Give her peace with being there. And give, give our dear brother Daniel peace with what you're doing in his mother's life. Be with that entire family. We ask you to be with Marsha Hufford and Steve as they're traveling down to Missouri, making trips to move their stuff down there. Give them safe travels. Give them strength to make this move. And uh, give them both the hunger to do all that they do to your glory. We thank you for the, the strength and the good health that you are giving to our brothers, Tony and Gail. We pray that you'll continue to do that. Heal them where the healing is needed and strengthen them where the, when they need strength. We rejoice with them that you help them to just be a light to the group that they met with from the from the worldwide church, and uh, and we thank you that they were able to comfort their their lost friends, family, and friends. We ask, Father, that you will be with our sister Angela Martinez, give her relief from the headaches that she experiences in the morning. 
And we believe that you will do that. Help her to continue to fight against the temptation to just reach out and take a, a medication for every pain that she has. Help her to endure the pain and overcome the pain because we do believe that you will restore her bodily uh, functions to, to, to do just that. But in, in any case, Father, give her peace of mind with what you lay upon her. We, we thank you for uh, the report that she's given us this morning about the acceptance of her request for medical marijuana, and we ask that you will comfort her daughter, Patricia. Give her peace with the unjust things that are happening at her work. Be with Fanny and her granddaughter, Amanda, who has been pronounced legally blind. Our prayer is, Father, that you will give her the, the direction that she needs to do whatever might help her to overcome this uh, declining uh, health of her eyes. Give her the wisdom that she needs, <clears throat> the discipline that she needs to do whatever is necessary to retain her sight. Be with our sister Deb Zarr for the colonoscopy that she will be having tomorrow. And uh, be with her as she deals with her mother being placed in a, an assisted living facility also after her last fall. And finally, Father, we ask you to be with our sister Georgie Taylor with her upcoming visit with her mother, who wants to discuss her beliefs. We ask that you will soften her mother's heart and give her a sincere desire just to know your mind and to give Georgie the ability to humbly deal with her mother and to use discernment when doing so and to speak when, when she needs to and to desist from speaking when she sees that her words are not being received. Finally, we ask you to be with us in our study today. Help us to rejoice in what you've given us and, and open our, the eyes of our understanding to see what is the uh, blessing that you placed upon us, the wonderful experience that you've given us to be seated with you in the heavens. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, we're getting started just a few minutes late, and this may go just a few minutes longer than normal, but we'll see what the Lord does. But anyway, our, our subject today is, is the function of the seraphims that we're studying here in Isaiah 6. We'll be uh, covering verses 4 through 7, and so I'll read them first, and we'll get into the study. Verse 4, And the posts of the door speaking of the temple, moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with the smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongues from off the altar. And he laid, upon my laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin purged. 
uh, I learned from our brother David Rogers last night. We were just discussing this upcoming uh, project that the Lord has placed upon him, which is coming along. I am glad to uh, report uh, uh, very well. He's actually got a first draft of uh, the what he's calling uh, the his body version, HBV, I guess it would be. And uh, he pointed out to me that this word live coal here, the word coal, is actually the same word translated pavement. So while it's not a bad translation to have it live coal, we just need to understand, understand that the word is derived from the word pavement. And, and the connection is that we have a walk that is a fiery walk because we walk on pavement. We bow down to the pavement, and we have a fiery experience with the pavement. Stones of fire are in the pavement, apparently, but uh, we we are we are learning these things, and the the Lord is going to be blessing us with this work that our brother Dave Rogers is doing, and we're just really thankful for that and looking forward to it. Anyway, getting on down to verse. Seven. He laid it upon my mouth and said, "Lo, this has touched your lips. This, these hot coals, live coals from the altar, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is purged." Now, you've all heard me say time and again that the altar is the cross. Well, the cross is a fire experience. That's just what it is. It's the death of our old man, and it all works together, and it's all saying the same thing. Our study today concerns the function of the seraphims, but to be comprehensive concerning their function, we're going to have to go back and look at verse 2 in last week's study and consider why the seraphims cover their faces and their feet with their wings. So let me just read the, the first three verses of last week's study, the first three verses of this chapter from last week's study. In the year of King Uzziah, died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a thr uh, throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings, with twenty covered his face, with twenty covered his feet, and with twenty did fly. And one cried to another, and that's the crying that we read of in the uh, first verse of today's study. The, the doors were moved at the crying of the seraphim. One cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That's what moves the, the, the posts of the door. But, but we, we were told that they cover their face, they cover their feet with their wings. Now we're about to see what that means, and, and we're going to see that it's a very important function which they perform in the Lord's service to do that. And a uh, matter of fact, it will uh, help us all to to be quiet when we need to be quiet, to pause when we need to pause, when we come to understand the function of covering our feet and covering our face. We'll begin by seeking to understand the spiritual significance of covering our face. The first case of, a, of attempting to hide one's face <clears throat> was, of course, the story of Adam and Eve who had just become aware of the fact that they were created in, in a naked, sinful condition. That's what they were from the potter's hand, marred in the potter's hand. Naked, sinful, of the dirt, not of the spirit, of corruptible earth. 
But in that case, they were ashamed to be even seen at all by God, even with their fig leaves attempting to cover their nakedness. They didn't want to face God. Adam and Eve wanted to hide their entire body from God. And that story reveals to us how we're just naturally opposed to our Creator, whereas covering one's face reveals that we want to come closer to our Creator. So while there's a negative application, there's also a positive application. And even as we're being brought to realize that our flesh is offensive to the Creator and it's just corruption, and if marred, we still want to draw closer to Him. And that's what we're being told here in Isaiah 6. We find two places in Scripture where a man of God covered his face. And these will help us to understand why the seraphim cover their faces and their feet. The first example is Moses at the burning bush. Uh, and this is in Exodus 3, verse 6, and uh, we'll see, this, see that repeated in Exodus 33, verse 20, where Moses wants to cover his face. Now, the first one is at the burning bush. Moreover, he said, I am God the of your father, the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And then again in Exodus 33, up on the mountain with God, and he said, you cannot see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. Now Moses didn't take the opportunity to look, look upon God as a light thing. He knew that no man could see God and live. And Christ put his own hand over Moses, uh, Moses to hide him from his glory. Exodus 33, verses 22 and 23, it shall come to pass when my glory passes by that I, will put, that I will put you in a cliff of the rock and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. And I will take away my hand and you shall see my back parts. But my face shall not be seen. Now Christ's back parts typify the law of Moses which was permitted to be seen by Moses. Moses was not permitted to see Christ's glory face to face. Uh, and this is the contrast between Christ's back parts in the Old Testament and his glorified face, which he later revealed to his disciples with his gospel, his new Reformation gospel. John 14, verse 7. If you had known me, you should have known my Father also. From henceforth you do know him, and you have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it will suffice us. Jesus said to him, Have you been so long with me? Have I been so long with you, and yet has, have you not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father. And how say you then, show us the Father? And you just stop and think about that. Christ had revealed his mind to his disciples, and in doing that he says he had shown them the Father. Colossians, I mean, for 2 Corinthians 3, verses 6 through 8. Who also has made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, that's Christ's back parts, the law, but of the Spirit, his glorified face. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. But if the ministration of death, that's the letter, engraving in stones, the Ten Commandments, letter, was glorious so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the hands, the face of Moses, 
for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away, how shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? Now, that, like I've said so many times, there's nothing in Moses' hand when he came down from that mount with his face shining, nothing in his hands but the Ten Commandments, the tablets with the Ten Commandments on. So we're actually talking about a spiritual understanding of the law of God. Moses hid his face when he was told he was talking with God. The other man of God who covered his face when he was talking with God was Elijah, while hiding from Jezebel in the cave and hearing the voice of God. 1 Kings 19, verse 13. And it was so when Elijah heard it, that still small voice, that he wrapped his face in his mantle. There it is. And went and stood in the entering end of the cave, and behold, there came a voice to him and said, What do you hear, Elijah? When Elijah knew he was in the presence of God, he wrapped his face in his mantle, showing the fear and respect that he had for his God and for his own life in the presence of God. Hiding our faces is a simple acknowledgement of our realization of our unworthiness of ourselves and then of ourselves. We have nothing to offer God. Even, we, are, we aren't even worthy to be in his presence, and that's the significance of this cherubim doing that. Even being there by the throne, they realize around the throne of God, as we are right this very minute, Ephesians 2, verse 6, we have been raised with Christ and have been made to sit with him in the heavens. That means in, in, at his Father's throne and in his Father's throne with him. We need to be hiding our faces in simple acknowledgement of our realization of our unworthiness to be in our Lord's presence. Now, what the act of these seraphims hiding their faces tells us is that to this very day, our old man must be dying daily. And we must be in the process of being crucified with Christ before we will be granted to see Christ and his Father. Exodus 33, verse 20. And he said, You cannot see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. We've got to be in the dying process to see Christ and see his Father. Because when we see him, we see his Father. John 6, 46. Not that any man has seen the Father up to that time, save he which is of God. He which is of God. Remember First John 4, verse 5. We are of God, little children. He that knows God hears us. He that's not of God doesn't hear us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. That's verses 5 and 6, I believe. But we're of God, and we've got to acknowledge that and know that. Not that any man has seen the Father, save he which is of God. He has seen the Father. John 14, verse 9. Jesus said unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father. How say you then, show us the Father? If we are of God, then we have seen the Father. And if we have seen Christ, we've seen the Father. And this is how we see God in his Son. Romans 1.20 The invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. even his <clears throat> eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Spirit's invisible, and this is how we see invisible things in the Spirit. Ephesians 1, verses 18 through 20. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, 
that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Now that is what we're learning here in this study today about these, these seraphim and being around the throne of God. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power? When you have power, you can do spiritual warfare. When you have power, you can uh, heal sick people and raise people from the dead, spiritually speaking. We don't see these things taking place to any great degree the way they did during the days of Christ. Let's, let's wake up and smell the coffee. We are grateful for when God gives us relief from our pains. But who do you see today? And I will be the first to post it on my website. I will post a video on my website if you can show me someone who is born blind being healed of their blindness. Someone who is born lame from their mother's womb being healed of that situation. Someone who is dead being raised from the dead, physical dead. I will be the first to post it. But we're doing all of these things because the things we're doing are greater than that. That was physical. It didn't give anyone salvation. We are bringing salvation to those to whom we bring them. And there are few, but we aren't actually doing it. So let me read verse 19 again. What the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavens. Christ's inheritance is in his saints in the heavens. That's us. The heavens is us. Our understanding of the greatness of his power toward us is through our spiritual eyes, which are given to understand that, that the resurrection of Christ and the placing of Christ at the right hand of his Father's throne is also the resurrection of us and the placing of us there with him as his anointed. In his, anoint, in his anointed, he is symbolized by these seraphims, also called fiery cherubims in, in the book of Genesis, when God placed them at the uh, entering into the Garden of Eden to, to guard the way of the Tree of Life. They're called fiery cherubim. Understanding that his inheritance is in us, the saints, is the greatness of the revelation of his power toward those who believe. It's the eyes of our understanding which makes us to know who we are and what our function is. That function in his service is revealed to us through all these varied symbols of those who are with Christ in the midst of and upon his Father's throne. Revelation 4, 6. Before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. And later in the book of Revelation, verse 15, chapter 15, I think in verse 2 it says that it's like fire, a glass mingled with fire, crystal mingled with fire. And in the midst of the throne, that's in the middle of the throne, and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. You say, how can they be in the middle of the throne if Christ is on the throne? Well, it's not that hard a concept when you can accept what Christ said in, in uh, chapter 14 of John. I think it's verse 12. He said, where it is, he says, in that day you'll understand that I'm in you and you're in me. And we're in the Father. Right there in his throne with it. In his throne. In the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. Now, these four beasts, as we've seen, 
are the same as the seraphims here in Isaiah 6. We went over that last week. And now we must consider why they cover their feet with their wings. Isaiah 6, 2 repeats it. The seraphim which had six wings, with twenty covered his face, with twenty covered his feet, and with twenty did fly. Why are we told the seraphim cover their feet? The answer here is here in the book of Isaiah, where we're told in uh, Isaiah 52, verse 7, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that brings good tidings, that publishes peace, and brings good tidings of good, that publishes salvation, that says unto Zion, Thy God reigns. Look at that. Brings good tidings, brings good tidings of good, publishes salvation. Now, based upon that verse, no one has more beautiful feet than Christ, who was the first to bring us his good tidings and to publish salvation. Matthew 9, verse 35, Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel. That's another word for good tidings of the kingdom. And healing every sickness and every disease among the people. So why would anyone want to cover the preaching of the gospel? Cover their feet. Our answer is given to us by Christ himself, who spiritually covered his own feet when he said concerning himself, even while he was preaching the gospel and publishing salvation in, in this vessel of clay that we are all in. In Matthew 10, verse 18, why do you call me good? There's none good but one, that is God. That's the humility of covering our feet, covering what we do in saying we are unprofitable servants, as we'll see here in a minute. The lesson for us is that we too must have that same humble spirit that Christ had of knowing that there's none good but one, and that is God, and that we are unprofitable servants doing all that is commanded us and see ourselves as nothing less than chief of sinners, as we're told here in Luke 17 and, uh, and 1 Timothy 1.15. Luke 17.10, So likewise you, when you shall have done all these things which are commanded you, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which is our duty to do. That's all Christ was doing when he said, Why do you call me good? There's none good but one, and that is God. And in 1 Timothy 1, verse 15, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Jesus Christ Jesus has come into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Now, that's the spiritual significance of the seraphim covering their feet and their wings. Now, I, I heard a brother <clears throat> with whom I used to be in close fellowship read verse uh, 1 Timothy 1.15 and say that, wow, Paul was the worst person who ever lived. No, brothers and sisters, we are the ones who live by every word of God. And these are inspired words of God. They're in the word of God. And we, when we read these words, we need to be applying them to ourselves. The last question we need to ask is, what's the significance of these seraphims flying? With twain they did fly. What function do we perform while flying through the heavens? Well, we're about to find out. When we know these seraphims are just another form of the four living creatures, the four cherubims, the four beasts, the four and twenty elders, the seven angels, I'll add to that, and when we know that these various symbols symbolize Christ, Christ, his nation of kings and priests, his elect to live and reign with him a thousand years, then we can come to know why we are told to they fly in, the, uh, in their service to God. This is why they are flying, and this is what they're doing while they're flying in the Lord's service. Revelation 14, verse 6. 
I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to them that are upon the earth, that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. Well, we, there's no doubt who does that. No doubt what this angel signifies. Saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come. And that's why the doorposts move, and worship him that made heaven and earth, and the sea and the foundations of waters. And this is part of that everlasting gospel. Revelation 2, verse 26 and 27. He that overcomes, keep my work to the end. To him will I give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. As the vessels of, of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my father. Now you can take that, I received of my father any way you want to take it, that Christ himself had been through the shaking of the doors of the uh, posts of the temple and had had his own flesh broken in shivers. Or you can take it as living and reigning with Christ, putting down strong nations afar off and breaking them with shivers. It, it applies both ways. This happens to be the very same gift given to the four beasts and the four and twenty elders. Revelation 5, verses 8 through 10. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song, saying, you are, full, you are worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And have made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. When Christ delivers us from our sins and makes us kings and priests, he does so on eagles' wings. We are made to be kings and priests, and it's accomplished on eagles' wings. Exodus 19, verse 4. When you have seen what I did to the Egyptians, the Egyptians are our old man, and how I bear you on eagles' wings and brought you unto myself. When we're granted to know Christ, entered into the heavens themselves, to cleanse the heavens with his own blood, then we will see clearly where this throne, these seraphims, and this entire heavenly scene is taking place. We need to know that. We need to understand that. Where is heaven? Where is all this taking place? Why are we being told all of this? Hebrews 9.23, it, it was therefore necessary that the patterns of the things in the heavens should be purified with the blood of bulls and goats, verse 13 tells us. But the heavenly things themselves, that's you and me, with better sacrifices than the blood of bulls and goats. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands. Christ didn't, didn't come out of the grave and go into the physical temple there in Jerusalem. No, that's not what he did. Those are figures of the truth. But he's entered into heaven itself, into you and me now to appear in the presence of God for us. Well, where's God? That's where he is. He's in us, just like Christ told us. And that day you'll understand that. I'm in you, you're in me, and we're in the Father. We are the heavenly things of which the first temple was merely a pattern and a figure. We're the holy places, not made with hands. 
We're also these seraphims and the cherubims, whose likeness is likeness of a man and the likeness of fire. Now, what's the function of being the likeness of a man? Ezekiel 1.15 says, Out of the midst thereof, the, the fire of the God's throne, came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man. Now, there's a reason why this symbol is of God's elect was the likeness of a man, and that reason is the same reason Christ took on the likeness of man and became flesh and dwelt among us. John 1, verse 14, The Word be, was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In Philippians 2, verse 7, But made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. So, what does that have to do with these seraphims who symbolize us as Christ's elect? Christ twice tells us that those who persecute his disciples are actually persecuting him. That's what it has to do with. Matthew 25, verses 44 and 45, they shall answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we you hunger, or a thirst, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you. Then shall he answer and say unto them, Verily, inasmuch as you did it unto one of these least of these, you did it to me. And Acts 22, 7, you did it not to me, because they did not minister to him. That was what he was telling them. And Acts 22, 7 and 8, And I fell unto the ground, and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute? me. And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you're persecuting. So there we are. It's the Lord himself telling us that in both cases. Then we're also told once again in 1 John 4, 17, this too is by our Lord under his inspiration. Herein is our Lord is our love made perfect that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. The reason Christ was made flesh and dwelt among us is revealed in Matthew 8:17 that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying he took our infirmities and bare our iniquities. Himself took our infirmities and bare our sickness. In Hebrews 4:15, for we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. <clears throat> Christ became flesh and dwelt among us for the purpose of being touched with the feeling of our infirmities and being in all points tempted like we are. If it is true that as he is, so are we in this world, then we too must daily fill up in our flesh that which is behind of his afflictions, be crucified with him, and present our own bodies a living sacrifice to make an atonement with him to be the, that living sacrifice, to be the scapegoat for a trespass offering for his body's sake, which is the church. That's all a quote right out of scriptures, every word of it. Leviticus 5, verse 6, He shall bring his trespass offering unto the Lord for his sin which he has sinned, a female of the flock or a kid of the goats. The trespass offering can be a kid or a lamb. For a sin offering, the priest shall make an atonement for him concerning his sin. Leviticus 7.7, 7, as the sin offering is, so is the trespass offering. There's one law for them. 
the priest that makes the atonement therewith shall have, uh, shall have it. And Leviticus 16, verses 9 and 10, Aaron shall bring the goat which is the Lord's lot fell, and offer him for his sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat, it shall be presented alive before the Lord to make an atonement with him and to let him go for a scapegoat into the wilderness. Uh, that, that verse right there, verse 10 of chapter 16 of Leviticus, was a bombshell to me to realize that we are in atonement with Christ. That's why we must fill up in our bodies what is behind of his afflictions. For his body's sake, which is the church, which is, we'll read here in just a minute. Romans 1, 12, verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living trespass sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. 1 Corinthians 15, 31, I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. I die daily with Christ. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Galatians 1, 20. Colossians 1, 24. Who now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ. We are the living trespass offering in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. Our afflictions are for the church. When you are being afflicted, brother, sister, you are being afflicted for his body's sake, which is the church. And we feel your pain just like we are crucified with Christ. Being a living trespass sacrifice, dying daily, suffering and filling up what is behind of the afflictions of Christ are all being done in our flesh for his body's sake, which is the church just as much as the fiery baptism of Christ upon the cross was done for the same purpose. This is that which is written for us. And this is what we must what must be fulfilled in us if we want to enter into Christ, into our temple, into our Sabbath. That's the very meaning of being baptized with fire. Mark 9, verse 49, everyone shall be salted with fire, and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. Well, we are that sacrifice. John answered, saying, Luke 3, 16, John answered, saying to them all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I comes, the latchet of whose feet I am not worthy to unloose, of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Colossians, or 1 Corinthians 3, verses 21 and 22. Now listen closely here. This is a another very revealing section of Scripture. Therefore let no man glory in men, for all things are yours. Oh, everything is ours. Isn't that just wonderful? Well, let's see what it means. Because it is wonderful, the outcome is, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or things present, or things to come, all are yours. Uh, I'm willing to take, you know, life, and maybe even things present if they're pleasant, or things to come if they're pleasant. But it didn't say pleasant things. It says the world and death are ours. They're all ours. So we live by every word. Ezekiel also tells us the cherubim, who are the same as the seraphim, 
their appearance had the likeness of a man, and they also had the appearance of the fiery ministers of God. You know, we just read verse 5. They had the likeness of a man. But in verse 13 he says, As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire. There you go. We are burning coals of fire as well as using burning coals of fire. Taking burning coals of fire off, off the... Uh, off the altar, casting it into the earth and touching people's lips with it and purifying their sins. We do that. We are those coals of fire. And like the appearance of lamps, it went up and down among the living creatures, and the fire was bright, and out of the fire went lightning. The appearance of the coals of fire is what the living creatures are. And that's where that fire's lightning is coming from. Fire is also the word the Holy Spirit uses to describe the ministers of Christ just comes out and says it. Psalms 104 verse 4, who makes his angels spirits, his ministers, a flaming fire. Angels is his messengers. We are those messengers. Hebrews 1.17, and of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers flaming fire. Just quoting Psalms 104 verse 4. Now, these verses are contrasting Christ with his angels, and that's what, that's what this whole heavenly uh, scene is doing. But which of the angels said he at any time, sit thou on my right hand until I make thy enemies thy footstool? But who are we told these angels, these messengers are? Very next verse, this is what we're told. They are all ministering spirits. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister to them who shall be heirs of salvation? And who did Christ send forth to minister to them to be who are to be heirs of salvation. These are his own words. Jesus said to them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father sent me, even so send I you. With all this in mind, let's continue to inquire into the function of the seraphims. Isaiah 6, verse 4, The posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Now whose voice was he that cried? Well, verse 3, the very verse just before that, the seraphims cried one to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. It's at the voice of the seraphims, at our voice, the posts of the door are moved and causes the house to be filled with smoke. What are the seraphims saying which would move the posts of the door of the house of God and fill it with smoke? What is it you and I say to others? Let's, let's just say, for example, what will Georgie say to her mother? What will Tony and Gail say to their friends when the time comes? What, what is it? We need not guess because we're told what they're saying. Revelation 5, 7, 15, verse 7 and 8. One of the four beasts gave to the seven angels seven golden vials full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. That's what the, the seraphim say. And the temple, the doors of the post, was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. There you are. That's what moves the doors of the post. It is the fulfilling of the seven plagues of the seven angels and the lives of his elect. And everyone, every man on earth will live by every word of God. Man shall not live. Anthropos, mankind, shall not live by every word, shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God in due time. 
the fulfilled plagues will be lived by everyone in due time. In the lives of his elect, it moves the posts of the house and fills it with smoke. Revelation 16 gives us the fiery words of the seven plagues and their judgment upon the kingdom of our old man and upon the great harlot who has ruled that kingdom for so long. It's a fiery judgment which burns up and destroys the life of the kingdom of our old man and of his harlot ruler. The posts of the door are moved because these seven plagues are not only a consuming fire, but they're also a great earthquake, such as has never before been experienced. Isaiah 10:16. Therefore shall the Lord, the Lord of hosts, send among his fat ones a leanness. His fat ones is talking about his people, you and me. And we have all to experience leanness in our own due time. And under his glory he shall kindle a burning like a burning of a fire. And the light of Israel shall be for a fire, and his holy one for a flame. And it shall burn and devour his thorns and his briars in one day. It's a short work, but it takes a day. And shall consume the glory of his forest and of his faithful field, fruitful field, both soul and body. And they shall be as when a standard bearer faints. In Revelation 16, 18. <clears throat> this is the pouring out of the seven last plagues. And there were voices and thunders and lightnings. And there was a great earthquake such as was not since men were upon the earth so mighty an earthquake and so great. And I'm not, I'm not absolutely certain, but I believe the very next verse says the time has come for Babylon to be judged. <clears throat> I should have put that in there. <clears throat> because verse chapter 16 leads right into chapter 17 and 18, which are, the revelation of the harlot and her judgment. If we, as God's elect, are his temple, then it is we who are also the posts of the doors of that temple, which are moved at the voice of these seraphims when the coals of fire burn up all the thorns and briars in one day, and our, our new man becomes the very flames and the very live coals which devour and burn up these, forms, these uh, thorns and briars, purging us of our iniquities and sins. Revelation 18, this is the judgment of the harlot. Therefore shall her plagues come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she shall be utterly burned with fire. For strong is the Lord who judges her. She is the false doctrines, the churches and their false doctrines. That's who she is. That dominate us. We've all been dominated by her lies. This day of judgment comes to all who must pass through the fiery sword in the hands of the cherubims, which guard the way of the tree of life. During Genesis 3.24, he drove out the man and placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword, which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. 1 Peter 4, verses 12 and 13, Think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's suffering, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. When we learn to rejoice in our sufferings, we have come a long way. We're beginning to mature. It's not some strange thing to be judged by the fiery words of Christ. Rather, we're, we're admonished to rejoice as being partakers of Christ's suffering for his body's sake, which is the church. 
It's not some strange thing in as much as it's common to every man. 1 Corinthians 3, 13 through 15. Every man's work will be made manifest for the day will declare it because it shall be revealed by fire. The very fire we're talking about. The fire that these cherubims are, the fire that they touch our lips with, the fire that we, they cast under the earth in, uh, in, in the book of Revelation. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he has built thereon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Well, there's no man whose works are not burned, because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And those works will be burned. And we will suffer loss, and we, yet we ourselves will be saved. And we will have works, which are gold, silver, and precious stones, and we will receive a reward. Every man's work will be made manifest, for the day of judgment will declare because it will be revealed by that judging fire, which is taken from the words, these words, which conclude our study on the function of the seraphims. This is what the seraphims and the seven angels with the seven last plagues do. This is their function. Isaiah 6, verses 4 through 7, Post of the door of the voice moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. We're all the first Adam before we can become the last Adam. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin purged. Isaiah's iniquity is taken away, and his sin is purged by a live coal which the seraphim takes from off the altar. In other words, Isaiah is saved, yet so is by fire. He has fulfilled the seven plagues of the seven angels, just as the post of the door being moved at the voice of the seraphim causes the house to be filled with smoke, so also do the words of the seven angels with the seven last plagues being poured out upon great Babylon and the kingdom of the beast cause the temple in heaven to be filled with smoke. It's the same thing. It's the same story. The vision is one. The dream is one. Revelation 15, verses 4 through 8. Who shall not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations shall come and worship before you. For your judgments are made manifest. And after that I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. Anytime something is opened, our understanding is opened. That's what we're being told. And we understand that the seven angels come out of the temple. Out of the temple. That, that, that has to be us because we are the temple. Having the seven last plagues. Clothed in pure and white linen. All of those are signs and types of God's elect. Having their breasts girded with golden girdles. Just like we were told of the saints earlier in the book of Revelation. Well, there in chapter 5, where we're told about the four beasts and the four and twenty elders being having girdles of gold. One of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials, full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no man was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. So, it's the words of the seraphim that bring this all about. We are the seraphim. That's our function, is to
preach the gospel of Christ, which includes his judgments. Your judgments are made manifest. And after that, the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God. That's what we just read. And from his power. No man was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. The judgments of God are the, are the very gospel of God. In the life of every man whose works will be burned up, but himself saved, yet so is by fire. Now, what we've seen in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 13 through 15, Isaiah 6, verses 4 through 7, and Revelation 15, verses 4 through 8, all which we just read, are one and all telling us the same message. It's the same message Isaiah gives us in these two verses, which are the scriptural interpretation of how our iniquity is taken away and our sins are purged by fire. Isaiah 26, verses 8 and 9. Yes, in your judgments, O Lord, have we waited for you. And the desire of our soul is to your name and to the remembrance of you. With my soul I have desired you in the night. In the night when we just can't see anything, we don't know what's going on, and yet we know who's in charge. Yes, with my spirit within me, I will seek you early. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. What does judgment produce? The inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. So bring on the judgments that are upon the house of God now. Bring on the white throne judgment. Bring on the lake of fire judgment. Because when your judgments are in the earth, world, the earth, the world will learn righteousness. Now here is the live coal from off the altar, which in type took away the iniquity and purged Isaiah's sin. First Peter 4.12, again. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened. But rejoice in as much as you are partakers of Christ's suffering, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad with exceeding joy. Isaiah rejoiced. Isaiah rejoiced. 1 Peter 4.17, For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God, and if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? Well, we've answered that many times. They will be in the great white throne judgment, where God's judgment will fill the earth, and they will learn righteousness. That's the function of the seraphims, the four living creatures, the four cherubims, the four beasts, the four and twenty elders, the seven angels. Their function is to judge this world and then to judge angels at the great white throne judgment, which we are told is accomplished in the lake of fire. Their appearance is like burning coals of fire because they are also the live coal of fire taken from the altar, which purged Isaiah's iniquity and cleansed his sin. We fill up in our bodies what's behind of the afflictions of Christ for his body's sake, which is the church. They are Christ's Christ. They are the fire of the lake of fire by which every man's works are to be tried. We're also told in these verses, Isaiah 13, verses 14 and 15, The sinners in Zion are afraid, and fearfulness has surprised the hypocrites. Who among us will dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? No, it's not Satan, like you've been told all your life, down there with the pitchfork dwelling in fire. Though he will certainly spend time there, he, he, here's who, who dwells in the, here's the answer to that, those two questions. 
Who dwells with the devouring fire? Who dwells in everlasting burnings? He that walks righteously and speaks uprightly. He that is a coal of, like a coal of fire. He that despises the gain of oppressions. He that shakes his hand from holding bribes. He that stops his ears from hearing the blood and shuts his eyes from seeing evil. Ezekiel 1.13 For as the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire and like the appearance of lamps. It went up and down among the living creatures, and the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning. First Corinthians 6, 2 and 3. Do you not know the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know you not that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? That's study for today. And I hope that you've all been edified in some way and that you better understand the mind of Christ and are able to